As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a plethora of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I'm joined by the wonderful John Swinton, Professor in Practical Theology and Pastoral Care at Aberdeen University. John spent 16 years as a psychiatric nurse before becoming an ordained minister in the Church of Scotland. John, thank you so much for joining us again. We've talked a little bit sort of more generally about suffering and spiritual care and practical theology, and we, we've spoken a little bit as well uh-huh. specifically about mental health. But I'd love to, again, I'm aware this is a kind of whistle-stops tour, and you have written so much on these subjects. I'd love to talk a little bit around kind of disability and learning difficulties and dementia. Um, but the, the first thing I guess I wanted to ask you is, is how do you think we change the erroneous narrative which suggests that disability is a problem which needs to be solved? It's interesting that the the way that we tend to frame normality in the shape of ourselves. Um, You know, if if we're, you know, whatever you are, whatever you've been, if you kind of work out, uh, look around yourself and think to yourself, who in this place represents normality? Is it you? Is it me? Well, clearly it's me. But is it you? And so so normality is a very flexible and kind of, uh, contextual context. So we're quite happy for certain things to be considered to be normal. So if you have a high IQ, then nothing abnormal about that. If you have a low IQ, people start calling you abnormal. So why is that? Well, it's because we gauge our understandings of what normality is according to our cultural expectations. What we think is important is that which is normal. So in a, And that Stephen Post, a really interesting ethicist, describes uh, Western cultures as hypercognitive. That is, they place an inordinate emphasis on intellect and reason over things like love, community, compassion, and friendship. If you had a different kind of society, that different kind of cultural hierarchy, and to have, for example, an intellectual disability, would be maybe a term that you'd use because you have to access certain health benefits or health facilities, but it would be absolutely meaningless in terms yeah. of social judgment and value. You certainly wouldn't be stigmatized. 
So one of the reasons why disability is considered is is, is kind of so stigmatized is because of the way that we assume normality to be as a culture. And I suppose many areas of society have kind of failed to adequately support people with disabilities and their families as well. So what can the Christian community specifically be doing better in this area? Well, I think the the obvious thing is to for Christian communities to a, think through theologically what the, the significance of disability is, and B, in the light of that, begin to create communities that are um, reflective of their theological position, right? So let, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but at key points in the history of the Bible, God uses people with disabilities uh, in profound ways. So if you take something like uh, in Exodus, Moses gets his vocation, I guess his calling from God. And what's Moses' response? He says, I can't do it because I've got a stutter. So he's got some kind of speech impediment. So what does God do? Does God say, oh, you're right enough, Moses. Let me cure you of that, and then you can do your thing. And no, what God says, uh, 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 do what you're told, basically. <laughs> And so, um, and so, what Moses does, but also in that passage, which is even more mysterious, he says, "God says, who do you think does these things? Who do you think makes people blind and who makes people?" So, I don't know what that means, but at a minimum, what it means is that this is not the work of the devil. If God's implicated in that, God who is love is implicated in disability in some way, then you have to rethink that. Likewise, if you t- t- think about. The Apostle Paul, uh, Apostle Paul had this thing called the, the thorn in his flesh, right? So some people think it was some kind of eye problem caused by the blinding on his road to the Damascus. Some people think it was back problem. Some people think it was a, a, a member of his congregation, which uh, for, for all of us can identify with in certain ways. Either way, Paul, either way, Paul kind of uh, uh, asks God to heal it three times and God doesn't heal it. Mm. Now, Paul, who's the greatest missionary of all time, I don't think his problem was a lack of faith. Something else was going on. And eventually he says, nope, it's in, in this, his perceived weakness uh, and uh, that he finds the place where God wants to use, use him in that sense. So in rethinking our theology takes away the, some of the stigma from, from, uh, from uh, disability and recognizes that it's actually as you are, irrespective of what that means, that God will use you. So if we take that kind of theology, then you have to ask the question, what kind of community do we have to be to honor that kind of theological perspective? Um, and so the way I, I, I always think about that is we need to be a community where everybody belongs, right? So we have legislation that enables inclusion, which is put in the laws that, that say that it's illegal to keep people out of here. You've got to bring people in. But legislation for inclusion doesn't mean that people have to love you. You just yeah. have to be in the room. Mm. But in order to belong, you have to not only be in the room, but you have to be missed. You have to have a space that's yours, a space within which you don't just sit there, but actually are part of that community, which means that the gifts that you bring to that community are utilized and recognized in that way. 
So that's the, the kind of theological and practical way of thinking that I think we need to, to engage in. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually, even before you said that. So I think it's so important, isn't it? How do we kind of make sure that it, we're not just creating environments where people, let's say, for example, with learning difficulties, aren't just welcome, but they actually have something to offer. So how do we kind of actively help them to participate rather than, as you say, just kind of sit there? Well, you, you need to find out what people, what, what gifts uh, people have. So everybody in the body of Christ is a disciple and everybody every disciple has a vocation. The question is, what does that vocation look like? And sometimes it, it doesn't look like anything. I remember going to a, a, a community that, within which people with uh, intellectual disabilities lived and I spoke to one of the, the, the um care workers that, that worked there and he told me this story he was a German guy and it, he told me this story he said when I came to this community um, I, I wasn't a Christian I wasn't interested like, uh, but one of my main tasks was to take this guy in a wheelchair to chapel every day so every day we take him to the chapel and every day they take the sacrament and every day they come back and so they would come backwards and forwards and they did this for two years Um. And at the end of that time, unfortunately, the, the gentleman died. The gentleman in the wheelchair died. And the, the care worker said to me, you know, the first thing I noticed was that I missed the sacrament. He said, all the time, I thought I was doing this guy a favor going to church every day. It wasn't like, and it turns out that God was working in me rather than simply working with well. him. And so sometimes just by doing nothing, yeah. You find that's your vocation. Do you think the spiritual and religious needs of people with disabilities are significantly different from people without those disabilities? Or is it a kind of, it's different for each person? I think it's the same for everybody. I don't think there's anything that you'll, in relation to people with intellectual disabilities, nothing different than for you and I would want. The only difference might be that some people are able to use language to articulate yeah. their love of God and some people are not. So but I think at the end of the day, what, do we, what, what, what does worship mean? It means being in right relationship with God, learning to, to what it means to be loved and to love other people. And for some of us, we use words to do that. Some of us, we don't. But basically, the impulse is exactly the same. Why? Because we are exactly the same. So how do we make sure that we are meeting the spiritual needs of people, for instance, with intellectual difficulties? Ask them. It's as simple as that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not really mysterious. Like, I mean, if somebody, the fact that somebody has an intellectual disability, if they are able to talk, well, you, you ask them. If, they, if, if somebody's in a situation where they don't have language, then you do your best to communicate in the way that they communicate so that you can get a sense of what uh, functions for them, what doesn't function for them, so that you, at the end of the day, this is important, you understand and learn what a person's needs are on a unique basis, but at the same time, you find yourself being taught that some of the assumptions that you have about what communication is and what it means to have spiritual experiences begins to be transformed. So just get to know people is the short yes. answer and then everything will come from that. 
You've written lots about dementia. You've written a brilliant book, Dementia, Living in the Memories of God. Do you think some of the questions uh, around people who are struggling with dementia perhaps are similar to those questions for people who might have intellectual difficulties or or is it completely different? There would be similar questions, (laughs) um, but there would be two different narratives. One would be a narrative of being, where I, if I had a profound intellectual just I just be in the world. That's why I am. This is the way I am. I've never been anything else. So this is how you how, how you work out the, the meaning of my life. If you have dementia, it's a narrative of loss. <laughs> so it's a narrative where I was this, but now I'm becoming something different. So you have the same questions. And how do I understand who God is when I can't understand who God is? But the two stories actually make the context quite quite different. And I suppose this this may be a question that relates to both categories of people. But what does it mean to know God when you perhaps have a limited conceptual intellectual capacity to be able to do that, to, to know who God is? Yeah, so it depends on what you mean by knowing God. Um, but so James talks about, uh, James 3, he talks about the... Uh, the demons know more about God than you do. Go out and care for the widows and orphans. And you get the same thing in Jeremiah twenty two sixteen, when Jeremiah's talking about the nature of a good king. He says, uh, he goes out, a good king goes and looks after the widows and the orphans. But there's a little text in there that's really interesting. He says, is that not what it means to know me? That's, that's really, really powerful. Is that not what it means to know? To look after the widows and orphans, is that not what it means to know? But yeah. In other words, to know God is not simply to know things about God. You know, I work in I work in the university. I know lots of people know lots of things about God, but not everybody knows God. To know God is to act in a particular way, particularly towards uh, to, uh, marginalized and oppressed people. But uh, to know God is a social practice. It's a way of being in the world, a way of relating, a way of coming together as human beings, as human beings. And so, in relation to knowing God, for somebody with a profound intellectual disability, they come to know God in and through the relationships that you or I might offer to them in that sense, and they might offer to us. So as we relate together, so they come to know God. They may not be able to name God in that sense, but that's a different thing altogether. Because they may well know God, even if they can't name God in that sense. Like, and likewise for somebody who lives with dementia, you may <clears throat> find yourself in a situation where you're forgetting about God, but that doesn't mean to say that God's forgetting about you. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. You've written about the limitations of the language of personhood in reference to people struggling with dementia. What do you mean by some of the things that you said about the limitations of language? And is that something that we could also potentially apply to people who are struggling with intellectual difficulties as well? Well, language is always important. and It's particularly important when you're uh, thinking about people who uh, struggle to find their own voice or, or whose voice is so is made so silent by society that it's, it's overpowered. Um, uh, in relation to dementia, language is very important. Because sometimes you, I'll give an example, you hear people say things like, he or she is not the person they used to be. 
yeah. I'd, or I'd rather remember them the way that they were. Um, on the last latter one, you have to think, well, it's not about you. It's not about you remembering this. It's about you visiting somebody. But in the first one, it's so because if they're not the person that they were, then who are they and why would you love them? And so the language that you use there is actually really, really uh, uh, important. Like, and likewise, in terms of intellectual disability, if you're talking about somebody as if they're not there, uh, then the same thing is. Because if they're not there, then why would you care? So it's very important to use language that recognizes that people are, are very much there, and that's it. So that, that sense of, of language, I think, is, 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 is very important. But on the question of um, she, he or she is not the person they used to be. That tells you something very interesting about the way that we think about who an individual is. Right? So we tend to think about who we are in terms of the story that we can tell. So for me to be who I am, apparently, I have to bring a story about my past into the present and articulate it. And then I can kind of, uh, imagine what the future will look like. If I can no longer tell my own story, then I, I'm no longer the person that I used to be because I can't remember who I used to be, so therefore I can't be anything. Which is the exact opposite of what Scripture tells us about who human beings are. So, you know, Paul is very clear that we're not who we are because of who we remember who we are. We are who we are in Christ. And so our primary identity is not built into a neurology, but it's built into a relationship with Christ. So it's it's God's memory as he remembers us that's important, not as we remember ourselves, because our memory is pretty fickle no matter what happens. <laughs> and more than that, Paul in Colossians says uh, 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 that our, who we are is hidden in Christ. So even you and I who may think we know who we are, we don't really know who we are. Only God ever knows who you are. And so that cultural construction of who we are that's based on our own memory uh, is understandable, but just mistaken. Um, and the beauty of the gospel uh, is that when we begin to uh, reread people in the light of that, you see there's a whole new story to be told, even in the midst of profound neurological decline. How, how are we best to support people struggling with dementia? Well, the first thing is to, to uh, give people the benefit of the doubt, right? So rather than assuming that the person has gone or however you want to phrase it, just assume the person is here. So be generous Thanks. with yourself and be generous with your interpretations of people. Because I don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about how human communication works. Right? Human communication is a matter of mind reading, right? So I'm looking at you and I have to read my, your mind to try and work out What's she thinking? Oh, she's smiling. Maybe she's friendly. Maybe she's not. So we're constantly reading and responding accordingly. But if you have a really profoundly negative understanding of something like dementia, where you think, oh, well, this person's just gone, it's useless, then that's how you'll read their minds. That's how you'll read the situation. And so when it comes to that time where that person maybe is able to be with you in a special way, in a different way, you're not going to see that because you're already misreading the person's mind. So giving people the benefit of the doubt, slowing down and taking time to be with them. Because it's only when you slow down and take time to be somebody that you can have the, those kind of really beautiful moments sometimes where you lock into somebody with dementia in a way that you, you perhaps don't at other times. If you're running along too quickly 
or if you're if you're not looking properly, you miss that. But if you slow down and take time, then you begin to see things differently. So these two simple things give people the benefit of down, give them the gift of time, and slow yes. down is a beginning point for uh, friendship. We've spoken sort of more generally about spiritual care in a previous episode, but how do we help to cultivate a spiritual life among people who have got dementia? Well, that, 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 that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, perseverance would be the thing, and an assumption that there's, there's, that there's more happening than you might want to be happening. Mm. But you can do it very straightforwardly through, through music, through scripture reading, through prayers, all of these things, because... Um, the brain's a really complicated, stating the obvious, really complicated thing. But one of the <laughs> things about the, the brain is it's plastic. It's constantly responding to experiences, not like your hair or your nails, which just grow according to a genetic pattern. Your, your brain is always responding to your experience in that sense. And one of the interesting things about certain forms of dementia is uh, it's not necessarily that a memory is lost, as in not there, Sometimes that the the neurological pathways and neurons and synapses that enable you to access that are no longer accessible. But the brain is because it's plastic. The brain is able to reconfigure. And one of the ways in which one of the contexts within which such reconfiguration happens is when people hear music. And what the brain does is it rechannels uh, the uh, musical impulse around the broken neurology, and sometimes you can access that through the, the pathways that are the process memory. And so you'll see people who will you know, pray or sing or do whatever that, that they do when, when they hear that music. Now, the key thing there is that when you see people engaging with music in that way, music doesn't just take you to a place where you sing nice songs. It takes you to a place where you have a certain identity where you have relationships, where you have feelings, where you have experiences. And so as long as the music lasts, you re-experience all of these things, not just the memory, but the emotions that go with that memory. Once the music stops, it stops. So the person will be left with a sense of well-being, but no context necessarily as to why they feel. So the key thing there is to recognize that in that moment, you're with them in a different space, and to be patient and not to be, if you like, disappointed when that moment doesn't last forever. It's a bit like Peter right. on the mountaintop. You know, he'd yeah. love to be up there in, in ecstasy forever, but Jesus says, no, you better come down sometimes. And it's a little bit like that um, when you're when you're engaging with people. But these very simple ways of being with people open up the spirituality in important ways. Music's obviously a really important thing, as you mentioned there, John. Do you think the same could be true of, say, liturgy or kind of set prayers that people may have prayed earlier in their lives yes. or scripture and things like that? Does it have that same ability to kind it of... It does. Yeah, it does. Uh, it, it, it can do. And one of the problems, the challenges, is that a lot of our contemporary worship is uh, you, you never do the same thing twice. Right, so you go to church and you you, you never the, the advantage a really good dementia friendly worship service is having the same hymns over and over and over every yes, day. It'll yes. be really boring. So as you build up that neurological capacity, so that when the, the the generation comes in, you you still have that. You you, you more than probably won't have that with a lot of contemporary music, um, which is not criticism, but just an observation. 
But yes, yeah, so if somebody's been praying for a long time, and you can see that because sometimes, sometimes people will no longer be able to articulate their faith, but they will take on the shape of prayer. For example, when you know you pray in that sense, and that's because over time their bodies have taken the shape of prayer as they've engaged in their spirituality over time. So now when they can no longer cognate, their bodies remember that because body memory is really, really important uh, and it's meaningful as well. So what you, what happens then is you you see memory acted out in front of you yeah. rather than you know it's been invisible. It becomes visible and you can see the fruits of the spiritual practices over years coming to the fore in that sense. And so these are the kind of things that are simple but very important. You raised a question in um, a previous episode, which I'd love to kind of throw back at you. Um, I think oh. I've got right what you said. I think you said, "How do we, um, how do we help people to know God when they've forgotten who God is?" Which is obviously a really key um, question when it comes to people who are struggling with dementia. So, how do we do that? How do we? Because um, I guess it's one thing when we are cultivating spiritual the spirituality for people with intellectual difficulties, because as you say, they've sort of potentially always had that limited capacity. But when it's someone who has had a, a greater cognitive capacity that's perhaps diminishing, how do we help them to, in some senses, go back to what they've forgotten and what they knew of God to start with? To some extent, the idea of going back to what you've forgotten is something that somebody outside would be keen on rather than the individual themselves. Yeah. But And so if you have a theology, for example, that is very focused on words and the ability to proclaim words, then it's going to be highly problematic for you when your mother gets brain damage and can no longer do that. Um, and, and But I think that's that's the wrong way to think about that because I think when you get to that stage where you have lived your life as a Christian and you're no longer able to remember these things, you're simply thrown back on the fact that we are vulnerable human creatures and it's not about us and it's never yeah. been about us and it's never been about what you know. I mean, what you know can't save you. So it's it's never really been about that. Uh, 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 and so the key thing for the observer, if you like, i.e. somebody that's, that's accompanying somebody in that situation, is not to let yourself and your own projections and your own fears move on to, A, the person who's living with dementia and be to take away from the fact that the spirit works in groans that you cannot understand, and the spirit will never abandon somebody simply because they have a little bit of neuro or even a lot of neurological damage. So I think it's coming to terms with your own fears and concerns, and then come to that space where you can really trust God in a situation where you have no control, either as somebody who has dementia or through somebody's accompaniment with somebody with dementia. So as we come to the end of this, we've spoken a lot about hope and Jesus being with us in the suffering and all of that. How do we articulate hope, both to someone who's struggling with dementia, but perhaps, as you've mentioned there, the carers of those who are struggling with dementia? Well, for some people with dementia, you are hope, right? Because you are the person that, that offers them stability, that offers them the possibility of experiencing that, that kind of love that we talked about, uh, you know, Anyway, does that know what it most to, does that know what it means to love me? Becomes you to, yeah. to, to enable that person to, to feel love and to experience that. For the carer, it's more complicated in some senses. Carers need respite, respite. They need support. They need places to go. 
uh, no, like my mum, she's eight and ninety-eight just now. She doesn't have dementia, like, but she does. She's living at home, and so we all give her basically full-time care. And once you've been there for a while, you just need to get out for a little bit, even just for an hour to go out there and walk, have <clears throat> go for it and have a walk. So it's simply to give carers even an hour to go in and, and, and help them to, to sit with that so they can go out and have a cup of coffee or do whatever they are. These very simple, basic things are what people, people need. And then the carer feels supported, the carer feels loved, and most importantly, the carer doesn't feel isolated from the body of Christ because the body of Christ reaches into that house, the home, and says, we love you, what can we do? John, thank you so much. I feel like I want 25 more episodes to to delve deeper into some of these things. But if people want to find out more about some of your research, some of the projects that you're working on, where can people go to find out about those things? A couple of books that may be helpful. This is- the book you mentioned, Dementia Living in the, the Memories of God. In relation to mental health, there's a book called Finding Jesus in the Storm that would be helpful. <laughs> uh, and in relation to intellectual disability, I have a book called Becoming Friends of Time, which would really push in more detail into the kind of things we've been talking about. So these three books would be catch capture something of what we've talked about over our time together. And I'll make sure there are links to those books in the notes oh, below. You. But John, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Oh, it's been a pleasure for me too. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show. Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information.